Welcome back, everyone, to our current adventure here at 1001 Stories for the Road. Before we get into it, I need to tell you that the final chapter of Mr. Standfast, which is full of action, arrived a week late to many of you, and may be buried a couple of episodes down, so please look for it. It's listed as Mr. Standfast, Chapter 22, Conclusion. You don't want to miss that one. So here we are with Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. In his lifetime, he wasn't nearly as appreciated as he is today. He was considered a children's writer and looked down upon by the elites in the literary community. But by the late 20th century, he was viewed as an excellent adventure writer who has been almost exclusively enjoyed by adult readers worldwide, on the same par with Joseph Conrad and Jack London. And his appeal is worldwide. He's the 28th most translated author ever, ahead of luminaries like Edgar Allan Poe and Oscar Wilde. I just enjoy his ability to tell a great story, and Kidnapped is definitely one. And now, Chapter 4 of Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 4. I Run a Great Danger in the House of Shaw's. For a day that was begun so ill, the day passed fairly well. We had the porridge cold again at noon, and hot porridge at night. Porridge and small beer was my uncle's diet. He spoke but little, and that in the same way as before, shooting a question at me after a long silence, and when I sought to lead him to talk about my future— "'slipped out of it again. "'In a room next door to the kitchen, "'where he suffered me to go, "'I found a great number of books, "'both Latin and English, "'in which I took great pleasure all the afternoon. "'Indeed, the time passed so lightly "'in this good company "'that I began to be almost reconciled "'to my residence at Shaw's, "'and nothing but the sight of my uncle "'and his eyes playing hide-and-seek with mine "'revived the force of my distrust. "'One thing I discovered, "'which put me in some doubt. "'This was an entry on the fly-leaf "'of a chapbook, one of Patrick Walker's, plainly written by my father's hand, and thus conceived, to my brother Ebenezer on his fifth birthday. Now, what puzzled me about it was this, that, as my father was, of course, the younger brother, he must either have made some strange error, or he must have written, before he was yet five, an excellent, clear, manly hand of writing. I tried to get this out of my head, but though I took down many interesting authors, old and new, history, poetry, and storybook, this notion of my father's hand of writing stuck to me, and when at length I went back to the kitchen and sat down once more to porridge and small beer, the first thing I said to Uncle Ebenezer was to ask him if my father had not been very quick at his book. "'Alexander? Know him,' was the reply. "'I was far quicker myself. I was a clever chappy when I was young. Why, well, I could read as soon as he could.' This puzzled me yet more, and a thought coming into my head. I asked if he and my father had been twins.' He jumped upon his stool, and the horn spoon fell out of his hand upon the floor. "'What gars you ask that?' he said, and he caught me by the breast of my jacket, and looked this time straight into my eyes. His own were little and light, and bright like a bird's, blinking and winking strangely. "'What do you mean?' I asked, very calmly, for I was far stronger than he, and not easily frightened. "'Take your hand from my jacket. This is no way to behave.' "'My uncle seemed to make a great effort upon himself. "'Dud men, David,' he said. "'You should nay speak to me about your father. "'That's where the mistake is.' "'He sat a while and shook, blinking in his plate. "'He was all the brother that I ever had,' he added, "'but with no heart in his voice. "'And then he caught up his spoon and fell to supper again, "'but still shaking. "'Now this last passage, "'this laying of hands upon my person "'and sudden profession of love for my dead father,' went so clean beyond my comprehension that it put me into both fear and hope. 
on the one hand, I began to think my uncle was perhaps insane and might be dangerous. On the other, there came up into my mind, quite unbidden by me and even discouraged, a story like some ballad I had heard folk singing, of a poor lad that was a rightful heir and a wicked kinsman that tried to keep him from his own. For why should my uncle play a part with a relative that came, almost a beggar, to his door? Unless in his heart he had some cause to fear him. With this notion, all unacknowledged, but nevertheless getting firmly settled in my head, I now began to imitate his covert looks, so that we sat at table like a cat and a mouse, each stealthily observing the other. Not another word had he to say to me, black or white, but was busy turning something secretly over in his mind. And the longer we sat, and the more I looked at him, the more certain I became that the something was unfriendly to myself. When he had cleared the platter, he got out a single pipeful of tobacco, just as in the morning, turned round a stool into the chimney corner, and sat a while smoking with his back to me. "'Davy,' he said at length, "'I've been thinking.' Then he paused and said it again. "'There's a wee bit siller that I've had promised you before you were born,' he continued. "'I promised it to your father. Oh, nothing legal, you understand. Just gentlemen dapping at their wine. Well, I keep it that bit of money separate. It's a great expense, but a promise is a promise, and it has grown by now to be a matter of just precisely, just exactly,' and here he paused and stumbled, of just exactly forty pounds. This last he rapped out with a sidelong glance over his shoulder, and the next moment added, almost with a scream, Scots! The pound Scots being the same thing as an English shilling, the difference made by this second thought was considerable. I could see, besides, that the whole story was a lie, invented with some end which had puzzled me to guess, and I made no attempt to conceal the tone of raillery in which I answered. "'Oh, think again, sir. Pounds sterling, I believe.' "'That's what I said,' returned my uncle. "'Pounds sterling. And if you'll step out by to the door a minute, just to see what kind of a night it is, I'll get it out to you and call you in again.' I did as well, smiling to myself in my contempt that he should think I was so easily to be deceived. It was a dark night, with a few stars low down, and as I stood just outside the door— I heard a hollow moaning of wind far off among the hills. I said to myself, there was something thundery and changeful in the weather, and little knew of what a vast importance that should prove to me before the evening passed. When I was called in again, my uncle counted out into my hands seven and thirty golden guinea pieces. The rest was in his hand, in small gold and silver. But his heart failed him there, and he crammed the change into his pocket. There, said he, that'll show you. I'm a queer man. "'and strange with strangers. "'But my word is my bond, "'and there is the proof of it.' "'Now my uncle seemed so miserly "'that I was struck dumb by this sudden generosity, "'and could find no words in which to thank him. "'No word,' said he. "'I want no thanks. "'I do my duty. "'I am no saying that everybody would have done it, "'but for my part, though I'm a careful body too, "'it's a pleasure to me to do the right by my brother's son, "'and it's a pleasure to me to think that now we'll agree "'as such near friends should.' I spoke him in return as handsomely as I was able, but all the while I was wondering what would come next, and why he had parted with his precious guineas. For as to the reason he had given, a baby would have refused it. Presently he looked towards me sideways. "'And see here,' says he, "'tit for tat.' I told him I was ready to prove my gratitude in any reasonable degree, and then waited, looking for some monstrous demand. And yet, 
when at last he plucked up courage to speak, it was only to tell me, very properly as I thought, that he was growing old and a little broken, and that he would expect me to help him with the house and the bit garden. I answered, and expressed my readiness to serve. Well, he said, let's begin. He pulled out of his pocket a rusty key. There, says he, there's the key of the star tower at the far end of the house. You can only win into it from the outside, for that part of the house is not finished. Gang ye in there, and up the stairs, and bring me down the chest that's at the top. There's papers in it, he added. Can I have a light, sir? said I. Nah, said he, very cunningly. No lights in my house. Very well, sir, said I. Are the stairs good? They're grand, said he, and then as I was going, keep to the wall, he added. There's nigh banisters, but the stairs are grand underfoot. Out I went into the night. The wind was still moaning in the distance, though never a breath of it came near the house of Shaw's. It had fallen blacker than ever, and I was glad to feel along the wall till I came the length of the stair-tower door at the far end of the unfinished wing. I had got the key into the keyhole and had just turned it, when all upon a sudden, without sound of wind or thunder, the whole sky had lighted up with wildfire and went black again. I had to put my hand over my eyes to get back to the color of the darkness, and indeed I was already half-blinded when I stepped into the tower. It was so dark inside it seemed a body could scarce breathe, but I pushed out with foot and hand, and presently struck the wall with the one, and the lowermost rounded the stair with the other. The wall, by the touch, was a fine-hewn stone. The steps, too, though somewhat steep and narrow, were of polished masonwork, regular and solid underfoot. Minding my uncle's word about the banisters, I kept close to the tower side, and felt my way in the pitch darkness with a beating heart. The house of Shaw stood some five full stories high, not counting lofts. Well, as I advanced, it seemed to me the stair grew airier, and a thought more lightsome. And I was wondering what might be the cause of this change, when a second blink of the summer lightning came and went. If I did not cry out, it was because fear had me by the throat, and if I did not fall, it was more by heaven's mercy than my own strength. It was not only that the flash shone in on every side through breaches in the wall, so that I seemed to be clambering aloft upon an open scaffold, but the same passing brightness showed me the steps were of unequal length, and that one of my feet rested that moment within two inches of the well. This was the grand stair, I thought, and with the thought, a gust of a kind of angry courage came into my heart. My uncle had sent me here, certainly to run great risks, perhaps to die. I swore I would settle that, perhaps, if I should break my neck for it. I got myself down upon my hands and knees, and as slowly as a snail, feeling before me every inch, and testing the solidity of every stone, I continued to ascend the stair. The darkness, by contrast with the flash, appeared to have redoubled. Nor was that all, for my ears were now troubled and my mind confounded by a great stir of bats in the top part of the tower, and the foul beasts, flying downwards, sometimes beat about my face and body. The tower, I should have said, was square, and in every corner the step was made of a great stone of a different shape to join the flights. Well, I had come close to one of those turns, when, feeling forward as usual, my hand slipped upon an edge and found nothing but emptiness beyond it. The stair had been carried no higher. To set a stranger mounting it in the darkness was to send him straight to his death, and although, 
thanks to the lightning and my own precautions, I was safe enough. The mere thought of the peril in which I might have stood, and the dreadful height I might have fallen from, brought out the sweat upon my body and relaxed my joints. But I knew what I wanted now, and turned and groped my way down again, with a wonderful anger in my heart. About halfway down, the wind sprang up in a clap and shook the tower and died again. The rain followed, and before I had reached the ground level, it fell in buckets. I put out my head into the storm and looked along towards the kitchen. The door, which I had shut behind me when I left, now stood open and shed a little glimmer of light, and I thought I could see a figure standing in the rain, quite still, like a man hearkening. And then there came a blinding flash, which showed me my uncle, plainly, just where I had fancied him to stand, and hard upon the heels of it, a great tow-row of thunder. Now, whether my uncle thought the crash to be the sound of my fall, or whether he heard it in God's voice denouncing murder, I will leave you to guess. Certain it is, at least, that he was seized upon by a kind of panic fear, and that he ran into the house and left the door open behind him. I followed as softly as I could, and coming unheard into the kitchen, I stood and watched him. He had found time to open the corner cupboard and bring out a great case bottle of aqua vitae, and now sat with his back towards me at the table. Ever and again he would be seized with a fit of deadly shuddering and groan aloud, and carrying the bottle to his lips, he drank down the raw spirits by the mouthful. I stepped forward, came close behind him where he sat, and suddenly clapping my two hands down upon his shoulders, "'Ah!' cried I. My uncle gave a kind of broken cry like a sheep's bleat, flung up his arms, and tumbled to the floor like a dead man. I was somewhat shocked at this, but I had myself to look to first of all, and did not hesitate to let him lie as he had fallen. The keys were hanging in the cupboard, and it was my design to furnish myself with arms before my uncle should come again to his senses, and the power of devising evil. In the cupboard were a few bottles, some apparently of medicine, a great many bills and other papers, which I should willingly enough have rummaged, had I had the time, and a few necessaries that were nothing to my purpose. Thence I turned to the chests. The first was full of meal, the second of money-bags and papers tied into sheaves. In the third, with many other things, and these for the most part clothes, I found a rusty, ugly-looking highland dirk without the scabbard. This, then, I concealed inside my waistcoat, and then turned to my uncle. He lay as he had fallen, all huddled, with one knee up and one arm sprawling abroad. His face had a strange color of blue, and he seemed to have ceased breathing. Fear came upon me that he was dead. Then I got water and dashed it on his face, and with that he seemed to come a little to himself, working his mouth and fluttering his eyelids. At last he looked up and saw me, and there came into his eyes a terror that was not of this world. "'Come, come,' said I. "'Sit up. Are you alive?' "'That I am,' said I. "'Small thanks to you.' He had begun to seek for his breath with deep sighs. "'The blue file,' said he, "'in the armory. The blue file.' His breath came slower still. I ran to the cupboard, and sure enough, found there a blue file of medicine, with a dose written on it on a paper, and this I administered to him with what speed I might. "'It's the trouble,' said he, reviving a little. "'I have a trouble, Davy. It's the heart.' I set him on a chair and looked at him. It is true I felt some pity for a man that looked so sick, but I was full besides of righteous anger, and I numbered over before him the points on which I wanted explanation— why he lied to me at every word, why he feared that I should leave him, 
why he disliked it to be hinted that he and my father were twins. Is that because it is true? I asked. Why he had given me money to which I was convinced I had no claim. And last of all, why he had tried to kill me. He heard me through in silence, and then in a broken voice begged me to let him go to bed. I'll tell you in the morn, he said. As sure as death I will. And so weak was he that I could do nothing but consent. I locked him into his room, however, and pocketed the key, and then returning to the kitchen, made up such a blaze as had not shone there for many a long year, and wrapping myself in my plaid, lay down upon the chest, and fell asleep. We'll return with Chapter 5, right after these sponsor messages. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And now, Chapter 5. I Go to the Queen's Ferry. Much rain fell in the night, and the next morning there blew a bitter wintry wind out of the northwest, driving scattered clouds. For all that, and before the sun began to peep or the last of the stars had vanished, I made my way to the side of the burn, and had a plunge in a deep, whirling pool. All aglow from my bath, I sat down once more beside the fire, which I replenished, and began gravely to consider my position. There was now no doubt about my uncle's enmity. There was no doubt I carried my life in my hand, and he would leave no stone unturned that he might compass my destruction. But I was young and spirited, and like most lads that had been country-bred, I had a great opinion of my shrewdness. I had come to his door no better than a beggar, "'and little more than a child. "'He had met me with treachery and violence. "'It would be a fine consummation to take the upper hand "'and drive him like a herd of sheep. "'I sat there nursing my knee and smiling at the fire, "'and I saw myself in fancy smell out his secrets one after another "'and grow to be that man's king and ruler. "'The warlock of Essendine, they say, "'had made a mirror in which men could read the future. "'It must have been of other stuff than burning coal.' "'for in all the shapes and pictures that I sat and gazed at "'there was never a ship, never a seaman with a hairy cap, "'never a big bludgeon for my silly head, "'or the least sign of all those tribulations "'that were ripe to fall on me. "'Presently, all swollen with conceit, "'I went upstairs and gave my prisoner his liberty. "'He gave me good morning civilly, "'and I gave the same to him, "'smiling down upon him, from the heights of my sufficiency. "'Soon we were set to breakfast, "'as it might have been the day before.' "'Well, sir,' said I, with a jeering tone, "'have you nothing more to say to me?' "'And then, as he made no articulate reply, "'It will be time, I think, to understand each other,' I continued. "'You took me for a country Johnny Raw, "'with no more mother-wit or courage than a porridge-stick. "'I took you for a good man, "'or no worse than others at the least. "'It seems we were both wrong. "'What cause you have to fear me, to cheat me, "'and to attempt my life?' 
he murmured something about a jest, and that he liked a bit of fun, and then, seeing me smile, changed his tone, and assured me he would make all clear as soon as we had breakfasted. I saw by his face that he had no lie ready for me, though he was hard at work preparing one, and I think I was about to tell him so, when we were interrupted by a knocking at the door. Bidding my uncle sit where he was, I went to open it, and found on the doorstep a half-ground boy in sea-clothes. He had no sooner seen me than he began to dance some steps of a sea-hornpipe, which I had never before heard of, far less seen, snapping his fingers in the air and footing it right cleverly. For all that he was blue with the cold, and there was something in his face, a look between tears and laughter, that was highly pathetic, and consisted ill with this gaiety of manner. "'What cheer, mate?' says he, with a cracked voice. I asked him soberly to name his pleasure. "'Oh, pleasure!' says he, and he began to sing. "'For it's my delight of a shiny night in the season of the year.' "'Well,' said I, "'if you have no business at all, "'I will even be so unmannerly as to shut you out.' "'Stay, brother!' he cried. "'Have you no fun about you? "'Or do you want to get me thrashed? "'I've brought a letter from old Hesiosi to Mr. Bellflower.' "'He showed me a letter as he spoke. "'And I say, mate,' he added, "'I'm mortal hungry.' "'Well,' said I, "'come into the house, "'and you shall have a bite if I go empty for it.' "'With that I brought him in "'and set him down to my own place, "'where he fell too greedily "'on the remains of my breakfast, "'winking to me between whiles, "'and making many faces, "'which I think the poor soul considered manly. "'Meanwhile my uncle had read the letter "'and sat thinking. "'Then suddenly he got to his feet "'with a great air of liveliness.' "'and pulled me apart into the farthest corner of the room. "'Read that,' said he, and put the letter in my hand. "'Here it is, lying before me as I write. "'The Hawes Inn at the Queen's Ferry. "'Sir, I lie here with my hawser up and down, "'and send my cabin boy to inform. "'If you have any further commands for overseas, "'today will be the last occasion, "'as the wind will serve us well out of the firth. "'I will not seek to deny that I have had crosses "'with your doer, Mr. Rankelor, of which—' "'If not speedily read up, you may look to see some losses follow. "'I have drawn a bill upon you as per margin, "'and am, sir, your most obedient, humble servant, "'Elias Hostseason, agent.' "'You see, Davy,' resumed my uncle, "'as soon as he saw that I had done. "'I have a venture with this man Hostseason, "'the captain of a trading brig, the covenant of Dysart. "'Now, if you and me was to walk over with yon lad, "'I could see the captain at the hawse.' "'or maybe on board the Covenant, if there was papers to be signed. "'And so far from a loss of time, we can jog on to the lawyer, Mr. Rankillers. "'After all it's come and gone, you would be swire to believe me on my naked word. "'But you'll believe, Rankiller. "'He's factor to half the gentry in his parts, an old man, far by, highly respected. "'And he kenned your father.' "'I stood a while and thought. "'I was going to some place of shipping, which was doubtless populous.' and where my uncle durst attempt no violence, and indeed, even the society of the cabin boy so far protected me. Once there I believed I could force on the visit to the lawyer, even if my uncle were now insincere in proposing it, and perhaps in the bottom of my heart I wished a nearer view of the sea and the ships. You are to remember I lived all my life in the inland hills, and just two days before I had my first sight of the Firth lying like a blue floor, and the sailed ships moving on the face of it no bigger than toys. "'One thing with another, I made up my mind. "'Very well,' says I. "'Let's go to the ferry.' "'My uncle got into his hat and coat "'and buckled an old rusty cutlass on, "'and then we trod the fire out, "'locked the door, and set forth upon our walk. 
"'The wind, being in that cold quarter of the northwest, "'blew nearly in our faces as we went. "'It was the month of June. "'The grass was all white with daisies "'and the trees with blossom. "'But, to judge by our blue nails and aching wrists, "'the time might have been winter "'and the whiteness of December frost. "'Uncle Ebenezer trudged in the ditch, "'jogging from side to side "'like an old plowman coming home from work. "'He never said a word the whole way, "'and I was thrown for talk on the cabin boy.' He told me his name was Ransom, and that he had followed the sea since he was nine, but could not say how old he was, as he had lost his reckoning. He showed me tattoo marks, burying his breast in the teeth of the wind, and in spite of my remonstrances, for I thought it was enough to kill him, he swore horribly whenever he remembered, but more like a silly schoolboy than a man, and boasted of many wild and bad things that he had done. Stealthy thefts, false accusations, aye, and even murder— but all with such a death of likelihood in the details, and such a weak and crazy swagger in the delivery, as disposed me rather to pity than believe him. I asked him of the brig, which he declared was the finest ship that ever sailed, and of Captain Hoseason, in whose praises he was equally loud. He's Eoasi, for so he still named a skipper, was a man, by his account, that minded for nothing either in heaven or earth, one that, as people said, would crack on all sail into the day of judgment. Rough, "'fierce, unscrupulous, and brutal. "'And all this my poor cabin boy had taught himself to admire "'as something seamanlike and manly. "'He would only admit one flaw in his idol. "'He ain't no seaman,' he admitted. "'That's Mr. Schwan that navigates the brig. "'He's the finest seaman in the trade, only for drink. "'And I tell you, I believe it. "'Why, look here!' "'And turning down his stocking, "'he showed me a great, raw, red wound "'that made my blood run cold.' "'He done that. Mr. Shuin done it,' he said, with an air of pride. "'What?' I cried. "'Do you take such savage usage as at his hands? "'Why, you're no slave to be so handled.' "'No,' said the poor mooncap, changing his tune at once. "'And so he'll find. See here.' And he showed me a great case-knife, which he told me was stolen. "'Oh,' says he, "'let me see him try. I dare him to.' "'I'll do for him. "'Oh, he ain't the first. "'And he confirmed it with a poor, silly, ugly oath. "'I've never felt such pity for anyone in this wide world "'as I felt for that half-witted creature. "'And it began to come over me that the big covenant, "'for all her pious name, "'was a little better than a hell upon the seas. "'Have you no friends?' said I. "'He said he had a father in some English seaport. "'I forget which. "'He was a fine man, too,' he said. "'He's dead.' "'In heaven's name,' cried I, "'can you find no reputable life on shore?' "'Oh, no,' says he, "'winking and looking very sly. "'They would put me to a trade. "'I know a trick worth two of that, I do.' "'I asked him what trade could be so dreadful "'as the one he followed, "'where he ran the continual peril of his life, "'not alone from wind and sea, "'but by the horrid cruelty of those who were his masters. "'He said it was very true.' "'and then began to praise the life "'and tell what a pleasure it was "'to get on shore with money in his pocket "'and spend it like a man "'and buy apples and swagger "'and surprise what he called "'stick-in-the-mud boys. "'And then it's not all as bad as that,' "'says he. "'There's worse off than me. "'There's the twenty-pounders. "'Oh, laws, you should see them taken on. "'Why, I've seen a man as old as you, "'I dare say. "'To him I seemed old. "'Ah, and he had a beard, too. "'Well,' "'and as soon as we cleared out of the river, "'and he had the drug out of his head, "'my, how he cried and carried on! 
I made a fine fool of him, I tell you. And then there's little ones, too. Oh, little by me. I tell you, I keep him in order. When we carry little ones, I have a rope's end of my own to wallop him. And so he ran on, until it came in on me what he meant by twenty-pounders were those unhappy criminals who were sent overseas to slavery in North America, or the still more unhappy innocents who were kidnapped or trepanned, as the word went, for private interest, or vengeance. Just then we came to the top of the hill, and looked down on the ferry and the hope. The Firth of Forth, as is very well known, narrows at this point to the width of a good-sized river, which makes a convenient ferry going north, and turns the upper reach into a landlocked haven for all manner of ships. Right in the midst of the narrows lies an islet with some ruins. On the south shore they built a pier for the surface of the ferry, and at the end of the pier, on the other side of the road, and backed against a pretty garden of holly trees and hawthorns, I could see the building which they called the Hawes Inn. The town of Queen's Ferry lies further west, and the neighborhood of the inn looked pretty lonely at that time of day, for the boat had just gone north with the passengers. A skiff, however, lay beside the pier, with some seamen sleeping on the thwarts. This, as Ransom told me, was the brig's boat waiting for the captain, and about half a mile off, and all alone in the anchorage, he pointed to the covenant herself. There was a sea-going bustle on board. Yards were swinging into place, and as the wind blew from that quarter, I could hear the song of the sailors as they pulled upon the ropes. After all I'd listened to along the way, I looked at that ship with an extreme abhorrence, and from the bottom of my heart I pitted all poor souls that were condemned to sail in her. We'd all three pulled up on the brow of the hill, and now I marched across the road and addressed my uncle. "'I think it right to tell you, sir,' says I, "'there's nothing that would bring me on board that covenant.' He seemed to waken from a dream. "'Eh?' he said. "'What's that?' I told him the same thing again. "'Very well,' he said. "'We'll have to please ye, I suppose. "'But what are we standing here for? "'It's Paris and cold, and if I'm not mistaken, "'they're busking the covenant for sea.' We'll return with Chapter 6, right after this sponsor message. And now, Chapter 6, What Befell at the Queen's Ferry. As soon as we came to the inn, Ransom led us up the stair to a small room with a bed in it, and heated like an oven by a great fire of coal. At a table hard by the chimney, a tall, dark, sober-looking man sat writing. In spite of the heat of the room, he wore a thick sea-jacket, buttoned to the neck, "'and a tall, hairy cap drawn down over his ears. "'Yet I never saw any man, not even a judge upon the bench, "'look cooler or more studious and self-possessed than this ship-captain. "'He got to his feet at once, and coming forward, "'offered his large hand to Ebenezer. "'I'm proud to see you, Mr. Balfour,' said he, in a fine, deep voice. "'I'm glad that you're here in time. "'The wind's fair, and the tide upon the turn. "'We'll see the old coal bucket burning on the Isle of May before tonight.' "'Captain Ho season,' returned my uncle. "'You keep your room, Uncle Hot.' "'It's habit I have, Mr. Balfour,' said the skipper. "'I'm a cold, rife man by the nature. "'I have a cold blood, sir. "'There's neither fur nor flannel. "'No, sir, nor hot rum. "'We'll warm up what they call the temperature. "'It's the same with most men that have been carbonadoed, "'as they call it, in the tropic seas.' "'Well, well, Captain,' replied my uncle. "'We must all be the way we're made.' "'but it chanced that this fancy of the captain's "'had a great share in my misfortunes. "'For though I promised myself "'not to let my kinsmen out of my sight, "'I was both so impatient for a nearer look of the sea "'and so sickened by the closeness of the room 
"'that when he told me to run downstairs and play myself for a while, "'I was fool enough to take him at his word. "'Away I went, therefore, "'leaving the two men sitting down to a bottle "'and a great mass of papers, "'and crossing the road in front of the inn, "'walked down upon the beach. "'With the wind in that quarter, "'only little wavelets, "'not much bigger than I had seen upon a lake, "'beat upon the shore. "'But the weeds were new to me, "'some green, some brown and long, "'and some with little bladders "'that crackled between my fingers.' Even so far up the firth, the smell of seawater was exceedingly salt and stirring. The covenant, besides, was beginning to shake out her sails, which hung upon the yards in clusters, and the spirit of all that I beheld put me in thoughts of far voyages and foreign places. I looked too at the seamen with the skiff, big brown fellows, some in shirts, some with jackets, some with colored handkerchiefs about their throats, one with a brace of pistols stuck into his pockets, two or three with knotty bludgeons, "'and all with their case-knives. "'I passed the time of day with one that looked less desperate than his fellows, "'and asked him of the sailing of the brig. "'He said they would get under way as soon as the ebb set, "'and expressed his gladness to be out of a port "'where there were no taverns and fiddlers. "'But all with such horrifying oaths "'that I made haste to get away from him. "'But he spoke with such horrifying oaths "'that I made haste to get away from him. "'This threw me back on Ransom, "'who seemed the least wicked of that gang.' "'and who soon came out of the inn and ran to me, "'crying for a bowl of punch. "'I told him I would give him no such thing, "'for neither he nor I was of age for such indulgences. "'But a glass of ale you may have, and welcome,' said I. "'He mopped and mowed at me, and called me names, "'but he was glad to get the ale, for all that, "'and presently we were set down at a table "'in the front room of the inn, "'and both eating and drinking with a good appetite. "'Here it occurred to me that, "'as the landlord was a man of that county,' "'I might do well to make a friend of him. "'I offered him a share, as was much the custom in those days, "'but he was far too great a man to sit with such poor customers "'as Ransom and myself, and he was leaving the room "'when I called him back to ask if he knew Mr. Rankiller. "'Hoot I,' says he, "'and a very honest man. "'And, oh, by the by,' says he, "'was that you that came in with Ebenezer?' "'And when I told him yes, "'you'll be no friend of his?' he asked, "'meaning,' "'in the Scottish way, that I would be no relative? "'I told him no, none. "'I thought not,' said he, "'and yet ye have a little kind of glyph of Mr. Alexander. "'I said it seemed that Ebenezer was ill-seen in the country. "'No doubt,' said the landlord. "'He's a wicked old man, "'and there's many that would like to see him hanging in a rope. "'Jeanette Clouston, and many mire that he's harried out of house and home. "'And yet he was once a fine young fella, too.' "'but that was before the report went abroad about Mr. Alexander. "'That was like the death of him.' "'And what was that?' I asked. "'Oh, just that he had killed him,' said the landlord. "'Did you never hear that?' "'And what did he kill him for?' I said. "'And what for? "'But just to get the place,' said he. "'The place?' said I. "'The Shaw's?' "'No other place that I know,' said he. "'Aye, man,' said I. "'Is that so?' "'Was my—was Alexander the eldest son?' "'Indeed was he,' said the landlord. "'What else would he have killed him for?' "'And with that he went away, "'as he'd been impatient to do from the beginning. "'Of course, I'd guessed it a long while ago. "'But it's one thing to guess, it's another to know. "'And I sat stunned with my good fortune, "'and could scarce grow to believe that the same poor lad "'who had trudged in the dust from Ettrick Forest not two days ago "'was now one of the richest of the earth.' "'and had a house and broad lands, "'and might mount his horse tomorrow. 
"'All these pleasant things, and a thousand others, "'crowded into my mind, "'as I sat staring before me out the in-window, "'and paying no heed to what I saw. "'Only I remembered that my eye lighted on Captain Hosey's "'and down on the pier among his seamen, "'and speaking with some authority. "'And presently he came marching back towards the house, "'with no mark of a sailor's clumsiness, "'but carrying his fine, tall figure with a manly bearing, "'and still with the same sober, grave expression on his face.' I wondered if it was possible that Ransom's stories could be true, and half disbelieved them. They fitted so ill with the man's looks. But indeed, he was neither so good as I supposed him, nor quite so bad as Ransom did, for in fact he was two men, and left the better one behind as soon as he set foot on board his vessel. The next thing I heard my uncle calling me, and found the pair in the road together, it was the captain who addressed me, and that with an air, very flattering to a young lad, of grave equality. "'Sir,' said he, "'Mr. Balfour tells me great things of you, "'and for my own part, I like your looks. "'I wish I was for longer here "'that we might make the better friends, "'but we'll make the most of what we have. "'You shall come aboard my brig for half an hour, "'till the ebb sets, and drink a bowl with me.' "'Now, I long to see the inside of a ship "'more than words can tell, "'but I was not going to put myself in jeopardy, "'and I told him my uncle and I had an appointment with a lawyer. "'Aye, aye,' said he, "'He passed me the word of that. "'But you see, the boat'll set you ashore at the town pier, "'and that's but a penny stone cast from Rankeller's house.' "'And here he suddenly leaned down and whispered in my ear, "'Take care of the old Todd. He means mischief. "'Come aboard till I can get a word with you.' "'And then, passing his arm through mine, "'he continued aloud as he set off towards his boat. "'But come, what can I bring ye from the Carolinas? "'Any friend of Mr. Balfour's can command. "'A roll of tobacco?' "'Indian featherwork, a skin of a wild beast, a stone pipe, "'the mockingbird that mews for all the world like a cat, "'the cardinal bird that's red as blood. "'Take your pick, and say your pleasure.' "'By this time we were at the boatside, and he was handing me in. "'I didn't dream of hanging back. "'I thought, the poor fool I was, that I had found a good friend and helper, "'and I was rejoiced to see the ship. "'As soon as we were all set in our places,' "'the boat was thrust off from the pier "'and began to move over the waters. "'And what with my pleasure in this new movement "'and my surprise at our low position "'and the appearance of the shores "'and the growing bigness of the brig "'as we drew near to it, "'I could hardly understand what the captain said "'and must have answered him at random. "'As soon as we were alongside, "'where I sat fairly gaping at the ship's height, "'the strong humming of the tide against his sides "'and the pleasant cries of the seamen at their work, "'ho-season,' "'declaring that he and I must be the first aboard, "'ordered a tackle to be sent down from the mainyard. "'In this I was whipped into the air "'and set down again on the deck, "'where the captain stood ready waiting for me, "'and instantly slipped back his arm under mine. "'There I stood some while, "'a little dizzy with the unsteadiness of all around me, "'perhaps a little afraid, "'and yet vastly pleased with these strange sights, "'the captain meanwhile pointing out the strangest "'and telling me their names and uses. "'But where's my uncle?' "'said I, suddenly. "'Aye,' said Ho-Season, with a sudden grimness. "'That's the point.' "'I felt I was lost. "'With all my strength I plucked myself clear of him "'and ran to the bulwarks. "'Sure enough, there was the boat pulling for town, "'with my uncle sitting in the stern. "'I gave a piercing cry. "'Help! Help! Murder!' "'So that both sides of the anchorage rang with it, "'and my uncle turned round where he was sitting.' "'and showed me a face full of cruelty and terror. "'It was the last I saw. 
Already strong hands had been plucking me back from the ship's side, and now a thunderbolt seemed to strike me. I saw a great flash of fire, and fell senseless. Thanks for joining us for chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. If you're enjoying our stories, please do send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. We would appreciate that very much, and it helps new listeners find us. We'll return next week Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with the next few chapters. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.